Ruth, week three, for those of you who've been tracking with us the last couple weeks, we started this series through this short book entitled Ruth. And what I want to do to start today with is begin with a lightning round review. Um, because we've done a little, like a chapter and a half, but everything that's been developing in the story so far is essential for everything that develops in the second half of the book. And so, uh, sort of lightning round, chapters one and two, let's just get straight into it. The book of Ruth, chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, if you're here the first two weeks, you know that every single one of these underlined words essentially has just a, a world of background and history and meaning behind it. And all of those words play a significant role in developing the narrative structure of the book of Ruth. So briefly, in the days when the judges ruled. So when is the days of judges? Chronologically, we're roughly 1,200 years before the time of Jesus. But more importantly than just a date marker, the time of the judges is a time of political, social, and spiritual unrest. Things are bad. That period is brutal. It's the type of period in the Bible where if you have a children's storybook Bible, they skip the majority of the book of Judges and kind of take out two, usually Gideon and Samson. But even that, they give you an edited version of those stories. So we're in a dark, dark time, and there's a famine in the land. The reason why this is important is the book of Deuteronomy outlines that in the Old Testament, in the time of the Old Covenant, God makes a covenant with Israel and says, if you are obedient while you live in the land, namely the promised land, then that land will produce food. It will bless you. So if there is a famine in the promised land, this is not only telling you that there's like a physical famine, there's not enough food to eat, but it's also telling the reader you are in a time of a spiritual famine, a physical and spiritual famine, a dark time in the period of Judges. That's the setting. Then it says, a man from Bethlehem in Judah. We talked about how Bethlehem is formed by two Hebrew words, Beit and Lechem. Beit meaning house and Lechem meaning bread, literally means house of bread which makes kind of the irony here all the more apparent. It's a dark time in the period of Judges, and there's a famine in the land, and a man from the house of bread has to leave to find bread. Like, you see that. Like, this is, this whole thing is almost like contradictory. There's there's a famine, both physical and spiritual, and it's affecting even the, the house of bread. So, like, the modern equivalent would be, like, there's no, there's no spaghetti in the spaghetti factory, there's no pokey at the pokey bowl. There's no um, chicken at uh, Chick-fil-A. It's, now, okay, now all of a sudden, man, oh, dark times, man. Makes sense. Man, there's no chicken at Chick-fil-A, man. Don't worry, they're not even open today. Um, so a man from the house of bread in Judah, which tells you we're in the promised land, a land of, of plenty. There should be food here. Because of this, he goes and sojourns in the country of Moab. And this is extremely significant to the first readers of the book of Ruth. This would be unthinkable. How is is an Israelite man going into the region of Moab? This is the worst place on the face of the earth. And quickly, if you were here the first two weeks, you might recall that Moab has an origin story. Like, it has a story in the Bible begins in Genesis 19, where Lot flees from the destruction of Sodom, but he goes into the hills and this grotesque, vile, sinful, incestuous, sexually immoral relationship occurs between he and his daughters. And the child produced out of that is named Moab, Moab being from father. 
So the beginning of this place is just seen as a place of sexual immorality. Second, in Numbers 22, the king of Moab gets a diviner to pronounce curses upon the people of Israel. Numbers 25, the men of Israel practice sexual immorality with the women of Moab and thus are invited to begin to worship the gods of Moab in which they take the invitation. And then lastly, in Judges chapter 3, Israel loses a battle and the people of Moab oppress Israel, which is incredibly important because if that's in Judges chapter 3, we're in the time of the Judges, which means what's in the living memory of those alive at this time of this story, they remember the oppression at the hand of the Moabites. So you had all of that together and Moab is like, why would you ever go there? Now, while... This man is in Moab, he, his wife Naomi and their, son, uh, their, their two sons, Malchon and Kilion, married two Moabite women. And because it's a time of famine and a brutal time, like the judges were, the story says that all three of the men die. All three of the men die, and there's now three women left living in this horrible state filled with misery upon misery. There's the mother who was married to the man whose name was Elimelech, her name is Naomi, and then her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. And these women have experienced tragedy after tragedy, famine, death, barrenness, widowhood. And because of all this, the mother, Naomi, tells her two daughter-in-laws, just go back to Moab. I'm going to go back to to my, my land, Israel. I heard that the God of Israel has visited his people, but you just go back. There's nothing for you. You're a Moabite. You won't be accepted. You'll have no future of family, husband, children. Leave me and go to Moab. And maybe there, return to your father's house. Maybe there, find a family, a husband, and you can have children. You can have something for you. There's hope for you in Moab, but there's nothing for you if you come with me. And it says, all three of these women, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah returns to Moab. But Ruth, this Moabite woman, woman, clings to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she says, I'm going to go with you even unto death. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. And she begins to give her allegiance to the God of Israel and returns as a widowed Moabite woman in the time of the judges to Israel. And the two women return, it says, so the two of them went out on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. From last week, you might recall that Naomi says, don't call me that, call me Mara. Mara in Hebrew is bitter. So she goes from Naomi, which means sweet or pleasant, to bitter. And this sort of rhymes with the story in the Exodus narrative where the people of Israel are once again in a time of need. They don't have water to drink, and they come upon Mara water in a place called Mara, which means bitter water. So they couldn't drink it. It wasn't wasn't uh, palatable. And so God does a miracle, and he changes the bitter water into sweet water. And what's taking place in Naomi's life is like the inverse of that. I've gone from sweet 
and pleasant, Naomi in Hebrew, to Mara, bitter. And she says, I went away full, and I've returned empty. God has testified against me. Now, what we, what we noted from the previous weeks is she's a woman who is broken. She has hurts and pain. She's experienced misery upon misery. Nevertheless, even though she's saying, call me bitter, she at least takes her bitterness and orients herself in the direction of God. So with her bitterness, with her brokenness, with her pain, she says, I think God is doing something here. I'm going to go in that direction. This is important. She does not allow the bitterness of life to close her off from future good that God might do on her behalf. She goes with her bitterness and brokenness in his direction. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose, husband, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, very important, Boaz is introduced to us in this story as a worthy man. You might remember from last week in Hebrew, Gibor Chayil. And the reason why that's important is Ruth is being depicted in this story as an Ishet Hayil. And so, in this time of the judges, in a time of, of sin and rebellion, you get two examples, a worthy man and a worthy woman, Ishet Hayil, Gibor Hayil. And so the story is telling us, like, even in dark times, there's these two examples that are standing out. And Ruth is forced to go into a situation of gleaning. If you're unfamiliar with gleaning, gleaning is something that was established in the law of Moses in the first five books of the Bible. And it was something established so that no matter what happened, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the sojourner would have something to live off. They would always have provision and sustenance. And what the gleaning law said was that when it was time for harvest and the crops would be picked, those harvesting were to leave the edges untouched. In addition to leaving the edges of the fields untouched, you weren't supposed to be focused on grabbing like every last bit of the crop. So if it's a grapevine, don't like focus on getting 100% of every grape, like leave some. And then if stuff fell to the floor, you would leave it. So then then, those who were in absolute poverty, destitution, and desperation, the widow, the orphan, the, the the sojourner, they could come in those fields and have the dignity of working and gathering, and they would always have provision. This this is a profound concept embedded to uh, an ancient Near Eastern culture. The Bible makes sure there's a way that there's provision and sustenance for those who have fallen on hard times and are in desperate need. So what is Ruth doing? She's gleaning as a Moabite in the time of the judges. And she recognizes that she's being treated well. There's people letting her glean as a Moabite woman. And she realizes this man Boaz, this Gibor Hail, this worthy man, is protecting her. He's told his, his men and the people around not to touch Ruth, which gives you an idea of just how brutal the times of the judges were. It was an assumption that she would be assaulted, so this man Boaz had to give the order to protect her. And she's gleaning, and so she sees Boaz, and she's like, what, what have I done? What have I done to earn this favor? And Boaz answered her, 
All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Now, if you were here last week, you remember the plot twist. Boaz notices Ruth, a Moabite woman, an outsider, who's brought in and is vulnerable and in danger, and he gives her protection. And the great plot twist from last week was that he learned to care for the outsider, the woman who's on the outside, who is vulnerable, because his mom was a woman by the name of Rahab, who is an outsider, a Canaanite in Jericho, who was brought in and given shelter under the wings of the God of Israel. So Boaz sees Ruth, sees her character, and he's a worthy man. And even though she's an outcast, he's giving her provision and care. Now this is, this is fascinating. Okay, so verse 12. Boaz praises blessing over her. The Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given to you. So he is praying that God would bless this woman. Okay, now watch this. He says, bless this woman, and then immediately in the next verse, he himself becomes the vehicle and means by which his very prayer is answered. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come eat, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat besides the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Now, there's some details in here that are so easy to just fly over, but they're they're important. Boaz invites her after she's been working into like a meal around lunchtime probably. And he's like, here's some bread and, and dip, dip this bread in the, mor- the morsel in the wine. So she sat besides the reapers. She's, she's among Israel at this point, among the workers. And then he passed her roasted grain. You know how good roasted grain is? I'm not sure actually. I don't, I don't know what it would have tasted like. <laughs> I don't know what roasted grain 3,200 years ago in Israel would taste like. Uh, but check this, she ate till she was satisfied. Easy detail to, to gloss over. This is a woman who might actually not even remember the last time she ate until she was satisfied. She's experienced famine. She's seen people wither away to nothing. See, we're, we're so divorced from the experience of this woman it's, it's hard to even comprehend because, you know, we don't eat for six, seven, eight hours and we're like, oh, we're starving, I'm going to die. This is a woman who might not even remember what it feels like to be able to eat until she's satisfied. Then it says, she not only eats till she's satisfied, she had some left over. Really easy to pass with that. Okay, she ate and then she was full and then she had some left over. But it's like, no, why is the Bible telling you there's some left over? This is important. Like, why is it left over? You know, because some of you know the leftover game. 
You know, let's say your spouse goes to a, an important meeting, they're going with the boss. You know, before he leaves the house, you say, hey, if this is on your work, you order the good steak, the big one. And you know what to do. And you bring me back some. You know, bring them leftovers. Get the doggy bag to go. Let's, let's roll. You know what to do. Order some, give me a side of calamari too. Okay, so there's some leftover. 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz again instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also put out some of the bundle for her to leave and glean from. In other words, Boaz is not only protecting her, he's not only letting her glean there, he's not only giving her a meal among his workers, he's telling his workers, make it really easy for her to glean and gather in abundance. This is the type of man he is. It's a gibor hayil. So she gleaned in the field until evening. When do you think she started gleaning? Remember from last week, she worked, she only took one break. They noted how hard she worked. Then Boaz invited for her uh, to a mill, and now she's working again until evening. She's an Ishet Hayil, and one of the characteristics the scriptures want you to do is she, she works hard, and she has a motivation to work hard for, which we'll get to in a moment. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. So this is the separating of the edible part from the chaff. And just know that you've worked from sunup till sundown. And when it's all done, now she's separating the edible part from the, the, the not edible part. And she took it up and went into the city. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Then she, she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. Okay, now the reason why that's important is there's debate about how much that is. On the lower end, the amount that she could have gleaned some people think by the measurements given is we're talking like a week's worth of food for two people. On the opposite extreme, some people go as much to say like a month's worth of food for two people. Now, it's irrelevant exactly how much there was. Here's the point. She has an abundance. She has more than she could have done by normal means of gleaning because she's been provided for. And how do you think she took all of that home? She's going to put it on her back. She's worked hard. She's still working hard. She's got this. And guess what? She got a to-go plate in the other hand. And she took and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gained. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left after being satisfied. Ruth brought her mother-in-law home the doggy bag. Now, jokes aside, what is this, what is this story telling you to, to look at? Ruth has worked hard and she's going to work so hard that she not only brings enough for her to eat, she's bringing enough for her mother-in-law to eat. And with what she had left over, roasted grain from the guy who owns the field, so it's probably high-quality food, she brings some home for her mother-in-law. Absolute care, commitment, and devotion to this woman. It's a very powerful depiction of Ruth. And rightly so, the mother-in-law recognizes it. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She knows there's no way you could have gathered this much unless someone was, was helping you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Okay, take a close look at verse 20. 
Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. The word for kindness here is the Hebrew word chesed. And we've been hinting along the way in our time and how important that word is. We're going to get to that in a few moments. But just know for right now that word kindness is chesed and it is an extremely important word in the book of Ruth and all of the Hebrew scriptures. There's another question that we have to address before that. She says, may he be blessed by the Lord. Who is the he in that sentence? May he be blessed by the Lord. Boaz. She's heard of this great Gibor Hael, worthy man. May he be blessed by the Lord. Then there's a comma, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now, who is the whose in this situation? Read it again really slow. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Because at first glance, that could be Boaz. May he be blessed by the Lord, because Boaz's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Or she might be saying, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose, referring to the Lord, his kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. It can go both ways. And in Hebrew, you're expecting like some definitive answer to come out. It's just as ambiguous in Hebrew. You could read giant scholarly academic articles on why you should think that Naomi is referring to Boaz. And likewise, you can read long articles about why she is referring to the Lord's kindness. Nevertheless, at the end of the day, it's, it's ambiguous. And that might be a problem unless you always trust the Bible and say, the Bible always knows what it's doing. If the Bible always knows what it's doing, maybe it's ambiguous on purpose. Who's doing the blessing? The Lord or Boaz? I don't know. There's another important insight here, though. Remember, Naomi is bitter. She's broken. She's got hurt and pain. Nevertheless, she's oriented herself in the direction of God, and she's refused to close the door on him. She's not saying, the Lord has forever forsaken me and forever abandoned me. I will be bitter all of my days. Her heart never becomes that hard. But she's open. And now she hears of this blessing. Naomi does not close herself off in her bitterness to see in the future goodness of God. This is incredibly important. With her brokenness, with her pain, in her bitterness, she does not close herself off from seeing the future goodness of God. And now she sees a glimpse of goodness. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose chesed has not forsaken the living or the dead. And then there's this strange part to us as modern people. Naomi said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Okay, it's really confusing here for a number of reasons. There are a number of laws in the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And there's a few of these laws that seem to have direct application for what's occurring right here. The problem is none of them quite fit the description of what's happening 100%. So for example, if you're familiar with the book of Ruth and you've gone through it or you've heard it taught, you might um, have heard that Naomi is suggesting that Boaz is something like something called a kinsman redeemer. And a kinsman redeemer refers to something called a leveret marriage, lever in Latin meaning uh, brother-in-law. And there was a practice established in the Hebrew scriptures and in many ancient Near Eastern cultures and in many cultures all the way leading up today that if there was a widow and 
the husband had passed and the widow had no children before the husband passed, that it was responsibility of the kinsman redeemer, the closest relative, a brother, had an obligation to marry that woman, protect her, provide for her, and continue the family name in honor of his brother. Super, super bizarre and weird to us, but many ancient cultures practiced this so that there was always provision and care and that the, the dead brother would be honored. Okay, so there's something like that culturally going on, but when you read the Hebrew scriptures describe a leveret marriage, it doesn't map upon this situation perfectly. One, um, if this was going on in this case, Naomi would be saying, oh, great, good news, there's this Boaz, we have a kinsman redeemer. Boaz would then, according to the custom, marry not Ruth, but Naomi. That's not, what's taking, that's, not, that's not what the story is hinting at. Furthermore, we don't even get the hint that Boaz is a brother to Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. He's, he's like a cousin or a second cousin. He's a, he's a relative, he's not a brother. So it doesn't quite fit the mold of that leveret marriage type of thing. There's another law that talks about the reclaiming of land. So let's say in Israel, someone falls on bad times and they're now in poverty. Rather than um, that person sell the land that they own in order to survive, there is a way at which a nearest relative could come claim the land and keep the land in the name of the family. And so there's some similarities going on, as we'll see this week, next week, with that, but it just doesn't quite map upon this. And so what you have here in the time of the judges is probably a blurring of the lines between like land redemption, um, leveret marriage, and also just a principle in the community that says when family falls on hard times, the first and foremost people responsible for caring for them are family members. And so if there is a widow the first and foremost people responsible to care for the widow or say the orphan is the family members. So no matter what's going on here, just know that this line is one of hope for Naomi. At minimum, whether it's land, leveret marriage or something else or a blurring of the lines, the point is this, this Boaz guy who's being kind to you, he's a close relative. He's taking it upon himself to be a redeemer to help us. And that's his response. If, if he's a worthy man, he will take that responsibility. If he's not a worthy man, he won't care. This guy's a worthy man. So there's this beginning hope that's established. May he be blessed by the Lord whose chesed has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, my, her, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Again, a reminder of how brutal the times are in the time of the judges. Now, super important note. At the very end, it says, she lived with her mother-in-law. And right before that, it says she was gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. Now, rough estimate for when Ruth started gleaning and the end of the wheat and barley harvest is seven weeks. Now, why is that super important? Because oftentimes, in that scene we just looked at where Boaz invites Ruth and he's like giving her the roasted grain, please dip the bread in the wine, 
because people are familiar with the book of Ruth, they almost start picturing in their mind like, this is sort of like a first date. Like this is where the romance begins. And I just want to like, look, don't read our 21st century modern American romantic comedy narrative structure back into an ancient Near Eastern story. Because for seven more weeks, what does Ruth do? She just gleans from sunup till sundown. She's just out there working hard. She's in a state of mourning. She is broken. She has lost everything. She's left her people. And now the only thing that this woman does in her life, she has one purpose. As a beggar in need to go glean among the leftovers and get as much as she can so she doesn't starve and her mother-in-law doesn't starve. Every day, her entire life is gleaning, working hard so that she and her mother-in-law do not starve. She's not looking for romance at this point. And Boaz invites her in and provides for her and gives her protection, but it's not like, and then he followed up the next day. It was like, hey, that was really fun. When we went, you know, I, I was wondering, you know, was there like, it's seven weeks, but you have a, a worthy man and a worthy woman, Gibor Hayil, Ishet Hayil, and they're doing what they need to do. The worthy man protects the vulnerable. He looks out for those in need and he helps them. And the worthy woman is doing whatever she can to provide for her mother-in-law, who is 100% dependent upon her gleaning in order to survive. Now, if you're looking for something to develop, just be patient. Next week, some things might happen. Okay. <laughs> but before we go there, I want to return to that Hebrew word we've been touching on multiple times in this series, hesed. Um, this word is incredibly important in the book of Ruth, and it's incredibly important all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. So this word appears in, in the Old Testament all over the place. And it's a very difficult word to translate. And I'll give you just a taste of that. Depending upon what Bible you're reading in English, the translators might use one of these words. Kindness, loving kindness, mercy, steadfast love, unfailing love, loyal love, faithful love, loyalty, favor, or covenantal faithfulness. Like that's a wide range of different words. And you're going like, why is it so hard to translate? It's because chesed is, is a word with a ton of meaning into it. It's like a giant cruise ship with cargo and a ton of people. It's filled with meaning. And what happens is when you're looking for one English word to translate it, it becomes very difficult to, f- to fit all of those people in that cargo in like a little tiny fishing boat that you paddle out with. Like one English word can't, can't capture all that's built into chesed. And so sometimes chesed is like, it's like a mercy. But sometimes it's like, you, I mean, you feel the difference between, and then he showed a mercy to, then he gave him steadfast love. And all of these words also in English have different nuances, like love, like kindness, or loyalty. So what I want to do is I want to briefly show you about seven examples of the word chesed and how it's used. And I'll put the word in bold, the English word in bold, but just in your mind, see the word chesed and try to start thinking about what this word is doing in Hebrew. Wondrously, show your steadfast love, O Savior, for those who seek refuge from the adversaries of your right hand. Psalm 17, 7. Okay. 
wondrously show your steadfast love. What stands out here? In a sense, the word has something to do with love. And that's why they're saying there's this steadfast love. But what's important about this first sentence is it says, show your steadfast love. So whatever chesed is, it's, it's like something that could be demonstrated. It could be shown. You could observe it. Now, why is that important? Because in our culture, when we think of love, we, we locate love in a certain place, right? Where is love, where is love to be found? In your heart. Or your emotions. It's a feeling. We have all different kinds of ways of expressing this, but the main point is when modern people think about love, we think about something that's like on the inside and usually associated with a feeling. Now, this isn't saying that there's not feelings involved or there's not some part of your inner being that expresses it, but this is, this is going above that. Show your steadfast love. There's something external about hesed type of love. Psalm 59, 17. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you for you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me chesed. He show, whatever this chesed type of love is, he shows it. Numbers 14, 19, this is an incident where judgment is going to fall upon Israel. They are wicked and they rebelled and now judgment will fall upon them. And Moses says, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your chesed, just as you have given the people from Egypt till now. When a wicked people rebel against God, is God fair and just to bring judgment upon them? The answer is yes. God is fair, right, and true to bring justice upon the wicked. Okay. But what is being appealed to is the chesed of God. In other words, yes, I know these people deserve your judgment, but go above and beyond what these people deserve. So you see this, there's like love involved and there's like a commitment involved, but there's also this level of going above and beyond what someone actually deserves. A few more. 1 Kings 20, 31. This is a great example because there's, there's two armies that are fighting. One side loses and the, all the survivors go, you know, you know what happens when you lose the war. They're going to, ancient Near Eastern world, they're going to come and kill us all. But it says, and his servants said to him, behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are chesed kings. Translated merciful kings in the ESV. They're going to, we've heard that they might show us mercy, but the Hebrews, they're chesed kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So normally in the ancient world, when two people battle, when the other side loses, just destruction is going to fall upon the survivors. And they're going like, we're dead. We're dead. But one of the people say, no, no I've heard that the kings of Israel are hesed kings. Maybe they'll let us live. 2 Chronicles 35, 26 through 27. This is a description of the life of Josiah, a king. Now, the rest of the acts of Josiah and his good deeds, the rest of his chesed, according to what is written in the law of the Lord. And his acts, first and last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. So, his, the, the translators put chesed as good deeds. 
Because they know, they know it's hard to communicate in English, but they know we're not just talking about like he's hesed on the inside. They're not just talking about like an inner character of virtue. They're talking about what an inner character of virtue does in the external world. Hesed is demonstrated. This is a great one. Um, King Saul died a, a death and he, he hasn't received a proper burial. And there's the men of Jabesh Gilead who basically go on this like secret top, top secret suicide mission to recover the body of King Saul so that they can give him a proper burial. And the men of Judah came and they, were, and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, the first king. You showed chesed to Saul and gave him a proper burial. Now, do the, do the men of Jabesh Gilead, do, were they contractually obligated to go on this secret top, top secret mission to risk their lives in order to give this man a proper burial? No. Part of it is going above and beyond the call of duty to show goodness to someone, even if they didn't deserve it. May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed chesed to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show chesed and faithfulness to you. Last one. This is probably the best one. Brings it all together. Many people's favorite Bible verse. Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So what does God want? He wants you to do justice, mishpat, meaning do what is right, do the right thing. Doing the right thing is important. And then it says to love kindness. Now the Hebrew word for love here is ahava, it's a standard word for love, and then kindness is chesed. Now this really makes the point because it's not do justice and love love, ahava love. It's love chesed. And so these translators are doing their best and to ahava, love, chesed. But kindness doesn't quite capture it because for many people, kindness is like a, like a characteristic. It's like they're a very gentle and kind person. And I'm, I'm not telling you not to be kind or it's not important to be kind, but that's not, as we looked at what chesed is doing, it's like this uh, going above and beyond the call of duty to do good for someone. And sometimes even if they don't deserve it. So it's not just like, oh, love being a kind person or have kindness in your heart. This is external demonstrable action. We are to do mishpat, justice, and to ahava, love, chesed. Let's bring this all back. Chesed then is, again, something like going above and beyond what is required and caring or loving or showing compassion to someone. This is incredibly important because in our culture, we often make love so much about what's on the inside and a feeling that we think what matters most is just like, well, I say I love you in in my heart type of thing. Or something bad happens, and we go, hey, bro, I'll send you good vibes. Like, think about this. 
A husband can say, no, I promise I love you with all my heart. But a husband who says he loves his wife and does not treat her well could never say that he has chesed for her. Do you see the difference? You say, oh, I love you a lot in my heart. But if it's not demonstrated in action, then what you're saying in your heart also doesn't harmonize with the idea that there's no demonstrable action that shows chesed. You get this. It's, it's a big deal. The uh, author of James says it like this in the New Testament. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is it? Someone's in need. I love you, bro. <laughs> Boaz sees Ruth gleaning in the field. My men have told me what you've done for your mother, the Moabite. Blessings, peace be upon you. That's not chesed. Chesed is going above and beyond the call of duty to demonstrate love. Now, how has that been shown in the book of Ruth? Okay. Ruth shows Naomi chesed. How? Because that's her mother-in-law. And when her husband... Ruth's husband dies, till death do we part, the terms of the covenant of marriage no longer apply. Naomi recognizes that. Remember, what does Naomi tell Ruth? Go back and start a life for yourself. But what is the chesed of Ruth? The chesed of Ruth is, even though the co- there's no more covenantal terms, like contractual terms that say, I have to provide for you, nevertheless, Ruth goes above and beyond the covenant terms of marriage and maintains a commitment and demonstrates with action her love for Naomi by gleaning every day to provide. Do you see the massive difference here? Our culture is filled with a lot of I love you in my heart stuff. And our culture is filled with a lot of like, oh, if I, you know, I just don't know how I feel on the inside about it. When there's someone in need, it's like, does it matter? <laughs> If you feel like, like, if, if you had to feel like doing good things for those in need, majority of people would never do anything good. No, you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes you're like, man, I know, Lord. I need to help this person. Like, you're not like, oh, it's, it's my joy just to lose financially for others. So, you want to give out of joy and you want to give out of uh, your love of the Lord. And those are all good and important things. Nevertheless, Hesed teaches us something important. What, you just turn your back on someone in need? No, no, no. You don't just say go in peace. What good is that? And so Naomi is like, she's the Yeshet Hayil. I mean, Ruth is the Yeshet Hayil. She owes Naomi nothing. She goes above and beyond the call of duty and goes as a Moabite woman to glean in an absolute state of vulnerability so that she might provide for her mother-in-law. That's chesed. Now, let's integrate this back to our story. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord. Remember this, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So word for kindness here, chesed. May he be blessed who's chesed. This man, Boaz, is caring for us. He's under no obligation to us. 
He doesn't owe Ruth anything, but he's giving us chesed. And by this, he's not forsaken the living or the dead. And now let's back to our original question. Whose chesed is this? Remember, we talked about this. May he be blessed by the Lord. That's clearly Boaz, right? But then whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead? Is that referring to Boaz or is it referring to God? Where does the chesed come from? Now follow this. Why is Boaz showing Ruth chesed? Remember, he says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. The Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz prays this prayer of blessing. The Lord, the God of Israel, may Yahweh bless you. May he bless you. Now look, what I just read was Ruth 2, verses 11 and 12. Okay, I left 13 out on purpose, and now I'm going to jump to 14. One verse later, after he prays that that God would bless Ruth, it says, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat. Do you follow this? For the worthy man who prays that God would bless this woman, it takes him one verse to recognize, I can be the one that does this blessing. It takes him one verse to say, God has blessed me. God has shown me chesed, and now I will show this woman in need chesed. In other words, it took one verse for Boaz to realize that he could be the vehicle and means by which his own prayer is answered and by which God's chesed will use him as a conduit to bless the woman Ruth. Now do you understand why it's ambiguous? Whose chesed is it? It's both. It's God first and foremost always, but through his people. which is massively important. What is one of the primary ways that the chesed of God flows from heaven down to earth? Through his people. This is why in the New Testament, his people are called the body of Christ. God's people are the body of Christ. Now let me show you the the inner logic of that theologically. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. After his death and resurrection, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And after this, he ascends into heaven and he's at the right hand of the Father. And he is currently ruling and reigning as the one with, who has all authority and power. The Bible also says that the church is the body of Christ and that Christ is the head of the body. So the head of the body is in heaven, Christ, who has all authority and power. And his body is where? Down here on earth. And he empowers his body through his spirit to be the body of Christ. So what is the source of all chesed? The king, the head, all rivers flow from the source. But God's chesed is administered to a broken world through his people, his body. Now, let me be clear. That doesn't mean that's the only way. God can show chesed without using a Christian. There could be a whole country with not a single Christian for miles and miles, and God could still do miracles and show up with chesed. 
Nevertheless, one of the primary and sort of like, if you might say, preferred mechanisms by which God, who is the head, Christ, dispenses his chesed on earth below from heaven is through his people, his body. So how does the world see the chesed of God on a regular daily basis? Through us, the Christians, the body of Christ. So that should already get you thinking, Lord, how can I show chesed to my family, my coworkers, my friends? How can I show chesed to my enemies? Because chesed is going above and beyond and demonstrating care, compassion, mercy, and concern. Christ is the head. He is God. He is true man. True God, true man. All authority. And now he uses us. So that should, um, there, there should be, like, feel your shoulders. There should be weight now. What is one of the primary way, ways that the world will know and experience the chesed of God? By those who have experienced the chesed of God already. And now let it flow from heaven into them and out to a broken and fallen world. Now you have to remember the formula. This is from Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved. So how did you experience the chesed of God? What did you do? Nothing. It's grace. He gave you chesed when you didn't deserve it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. We should have got death. What did we get? Chesed. Above and beyond goodness. Steadfast love. Loyalty and faithfulness. And this grace, this hesed, this great mercy that we've received. It's not of our own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not the result of works. We can't claim anything. We just received. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Chesed from above, and God has created good works for us to walk in them. Chesed to the world. Let's stand as we take communion.